Um, I was reminded this morning in, um, in this Romans group we've been doing on Sunday mornings where we're just kind of going through the book of Romans a piece at a time. And somebody asked about what's the relationship between the Word and the Spirit. And I remember um, a quote from John Wimber. He founded the Vineyard Movement that came out of the Jesus Movement in the 1970s. Perhaps some of you have attended a Vineyard Church. And he said, um, if the Spirit of God is like uh, a train engine, then the Word of God is like the train tracks. And if you have the engine without the tracks, the train will go all over the place and will never arrive. But if you have the tracks without the train, there's no point to it. There's no value to it. But when we allow the train to sit on the tracks, when we live a life of the Spirit with the Word, we find ourselves moving in the direction that God desires for us. And so tonight as we continue on in a posture of worship, we want to step into that place of Scripture being illuminated to us by the Holy Spirit. So let's pray and we'll step into this. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are good, that you are here, that you're for us, you're not against us. Lord, we don't want to go any farther without recognizing that foundational promise, the one upon which all other promises hang, that you will not leave us or forsake us. There is nowhere that we can go that you're not present, that you meet us as we are, you draw us into yourself, and we're transformed, and we're changed when we encounter you. Lord, that's why we're here. That's why we've come to this place together. <coughs> Encounter and transformation. So, Heavenly Father, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I've been thinking a lot about the idea of legacy recently. Uh, my younger brother, some of you have met him. He's uh, a little skinnier than me, dresses better, and uh, has a drier sense of humor. I recently got a job promotion, which is pretty amazing. He works for International Justice Mission, which is a nonprofit organization that's Christian-based but goes into some of the darkest places of the world and establishes an office that helps deal with some of the most significant human struggles that we have going on today. And it depends on where they're at in the country into what it is that they exactly address. Some, some places it's child slavery. Some places it's sex slavery. Some places it's domestic abuse. Some places it's property grabbing. But they have these offices around the world. And for two years, my brother worked in Uganda... And what they do essentially is they come in and, and American lawyers begin to prosecute with the laws that are already in place. And they educate local law enforcement and local legal channels how to uphold the laws that they already have on the books. And if they don't have the laws on the books, they have the opportunity to have some of those things changed. But they are dramatically changing some significant areas in the world. Just a couple months ago, he had the opportunity to go to Cambodia to tell the story of what's happened there, how they've significantly, significantly decreased child slavery in many areas of Cambodia. And yes, there's so much more work to be done, but there is so much that's already been transformed. And a couple years ago, my brother had brought up to them the potential value of having a communications officer that oversees a particular area of the world. And so they serve in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in mainland Asia, um, and in South America. And he brought this up a couple of years ago, and this year they have finally built in those uh, specific roles, and they've invited my brother to be the communications director for South Asia, which he is terrified of. He's never been. He said, Ryan, I'm going to have to go to India, like a lot. I said, yeah, I bring me with you. And he's, 
you know, he's kind of scared because he had spent so much time in Africa, and that's where his heart was. And I was like, Scott, I promise you, as soon as you land, God will give you the same heart for those people that he's given you for Africa. And I'm so excited for that. And it's got me thinking about this idea of legacy. You know, we were, we were very fortunate to be raised in an environment where we were told that our lives matter. And not only do our lives matter, what we put out into the world matters. And from a very young age, our parents instilled in us that that's what a purpose of our life is, to find the things that matter. When we talk about it in the context of the church, we talk about the places where we advance the kingdom of God with our gifts, with our passions, with our vocations, with our resources. And I've been thinking a lot about this idea of legacy in that, and that's what I want us to focus on tonight. So here's my thesis that I want to kind of come back to time and again tonight. Our life is meant to leave a legacy that glorifies God. Our lives, your life, is meant to leave a legacy that glorifies God. Tonight, I want to invite you to think about the legacy that you are establishing now. That the things that you put your hands to on a day-by-day basis, what do they say about the legacy that you're going to leave behind when you kind of toss off this mortal coil and you go home to be with your father? I want you to value your legacy. I want you to own it, that it's a gift that's been given to you from your father above that we have a finite amount of time on this earth, and God is begging us not to waste it. I want to empower you to be able to say yes and to say no. I want to empower you to be able to see the places in your life where God is beckoning you into advancing his kingdom, for you to sink your teeth deeper into the things that are of the kingdom, and also to be able to say no and to release the things in this world that just don't matter. Or worse yet, the things that sometimes we put our hands to that are flat out anti-kingdom. And it stretches us thin because we're growing into the kingdom of God, yet we've also got another foot planted in the things of the world and of the enemy, and perhaps we don't recognize it. And I want to invite you to be able to empower yourself, or rather to allow the Spirit to empower you to say yes and no to the things in life that truly matter. You know, there was a prophecy at the beginning of the establishment of this church nine, three and a half years ago. And it said that we were going together to create a legacy for our children's children. Our children's children. So few of us in this room even have children, you know. And there's a very healthy version of being present in the moment. But then there's also a very unhealthy version of being present in the moment. Where we don't consider what happens tomorrow and the next day and begin to plant the seeds now for what it will look like in two generations for what we've done today. And that's where I want us to go this evening. So I've got a good three points, as every good sermon has. (laughs) Tried to get them all to line up with the same letter, like the letter P or something, but it didn't work, so I apologize. Bear with me. But let's get into this. Number one. Kingdom legacy is rooted in doing the will of God. Kingdom legacy is rooted in doing the will of God. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 4. I want to show you this very small exchange between Jesus and his disciples, and I love this so much. It's just a couple of verses. In verse 31, it says this, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Don't you just love that about Jesus? He never gives the straight answer, does he? 
There's always the, the, the extension of a mystery that welcomes us into encounter. This is how Jesus taught. This is how Jesus beckoned in his disciples. And I think it's the same thing that he does for us. Because he doesn't give us the little morsels and the neat little tidy packages. But he actually speaks something or he does something that invites us into a mystery that begs for encounter. I can only imagine walking up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, do you want to go to the movies? My movies are to do the will of he who sent me. <laughs> what? <laughs> Jesus, is it going to rain tomorrow? My rain is to welcome the righteousness of God. Like, what are you talking about? But it's the mystery. It's the mystery that leads to encounter. So he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? As they do, the disciples very often take Jesus literally in what he says. But Jesus is inviting them to something that's just below the surface of the literal reading of what he says. And he says again, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know, often it's taught to us that when we step into ministry, that that's something that's going to inevitably drain us. Doing good works, doing things for the kingdom is going to be something that's kind of going to sap the life out of us. When we're in that self-preservation mentality, we don't want to give too much of ourselves because we're worried that inevitably it's going to drain us. But I think right here, very early on in his earthly ministry, Jesus challenges that assumption. Because for Jesus, to do the will of God was his food. It was his sustenance. It's where he found his life. Because you see, for Jesus, the, his identity is a natural outpouring of the intimacy that he has with Father God. I think very often when we find ourselves drained because of the way in which we give ourselves to the world and to those in need, it's because we've disconnected ourselves from our source, who is God our Father. But when we remain in that constant communion with God, seeking to be faithful to what he's calling us to be and what he's calling us to do, we find this, this nonstop flow of our ability to give and to plant seeds and to harvest and to reap into all of these things that Jesus calls us to. You see, ministry does not drain Jesus, but it's his sustenance. It's what animates him. It's what keeps him going. And I think what Jesus is inviting us to recognize here is these are the things that we have been created to do. These are actually not things that are unnatural to us. The kingdom at its core is not unnatural to us. Because if God is doing in the world what he says he has been doing this whole time through Jesus, through the spirit, through the church, he's reconditioning us back to that original Genesis vocation to be the ambassadors of God to the earth, to reflect the image of God into all creation, to steward creation and to care for it. And so God's will not only sustains us, but it enables us to thrive. 
It doesn't just sustain us, but it enables us to thrive. And I want you to think outside of just working for a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You know, sometimes when we talk about ministry, that's what we're thinking. That I have to go and work for somebody else's organization. I have to work for a church. In the church I came from before, there was a very uh, kind of moment of identity crisis where we had kind of been teaching that to some of our people. That we're all called to love God and serve Him. But if you're really serious, then you'll quit your day job and you'll start to work for the church for peanuts. It was actually very damaging. It put people in a lot of place of guilt of feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing enough because I'm an accountant, because I deliver sandwiches, because, you know, I work at Publix or whatever it might be that I'm not doing enough and somehow I'm compromising who I'm created to be. But I believe that when we step out of that mentality of what ministry is and we step into something new, we find that place of sustenance, that place of thriving, that we go beyond just church work as an organization, but we start to care about the things that God cares about. That's what ministry looks like. And what is it that God cares about? God cares about love. God cares about shalom, peace. God cares about beauty. God cares about justice. And what is justice in the kingdom understanding? Justice is a question that we ask when we say, what would this world look like if God was in charge? That's our guiding motivation when, when we pursue justice beyond human understanding, but a spirit-led justice, that God will put the world to right, and that God does not need any of us to do this for him, but he desires us, and he welcomes us into his rescue project for the world as he reunites creator and creation as we become um, the threads that sew back together what was torn asunder in the fall between the spirit and the physical. That's what it looks like for us to do ministry. That's what it looks like for us to do the will of God. And I believe the will of God is twofold, that there's the idea of the will of God that is creating the new, bringing out of nothing something, establishing something new where there previously was not anything. And this is the work of beauty. But I think there's also that place of restoring the old, of bringing back together the things that are in the world, but have been broken and tainted by sin and by the enemy, and realigning them back into the kingdom, because the kingdom of God advances, but it also expands. And that's the work that we're being invited into. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says this, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So if Jesus recognizes and my food is to do the will of the Father, it's from that place of intimacy with God that we begin to inhabit our identities. And then I think here Paul is speaking to us about how our purpose is something that flows out of that identity, that we are God's handiwork. Elsewhere it might say, we are God's masterpiece the best and most beautiful thing that he has created because it best typifies his character. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, but if we see this increasing complexity and beauty in the things that God creates in Genesis, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, and then he creates humanity. He says, it's very good. The very last thing he created was woman. <laughs> but we're God's masterpiece. 
We're God's masterpiece that male and female coming together demonstrates most accurately and beautifully the character of God, aside from Christ Jesus himself. And so our purpose naturally stems from us understanding our identity, that we are God's handiwork, that we are his masterpiece. But we were created in Christ Jesus. This is that cosmic Christ that stretches all the way back to the beginning and all the way through to the end. We were created in Christ Jesus as the word of God spoke us into creation to do good works, to do good works. We were created to do. The beautiful line at the very end of Genesis, uh, the Genesis poem in chapter 1 is actually Genesis 2 verse 3. And it says, on the seventh day God rested and observed all he had created to do. But in, in Hebrew, the last three words there are bara Elohim la'asot. And it can also be translated as God sat back and rested all of the things that he had created to, to do more creating. That God creates something and stands back and watches it continue to create. And as creation grows and expands, the glory of God, the, the, the symphony that God is writing in his creation becomes more and more glorious. And God places us in creation to help it do that. That's a little, that's a little side nugget. We'll come to creation care some other Sunday. But these good works were prepared in advance for us to do. Yes, we are justified by faith and faith alone. But as we see in James, as we see in Paul, as we see in Jesus himself, they say, don't just tell me what you believe. Show it to me. Show me the evidence of your faith that when you believe deep down within yourself, there is a natural growth outward into the way you live your life, into what you choose to put your hands to, into what you begin to value and what you begin to release value from. I believe it's that when we step into these works that God has set apart in advance of us even being born, that we begin to find wholeness. We find peace within ourselves because of the things that we have been created to do. I think too many of us have one foot in the, planted in the kingdom and one foot planted in the fallen world. And while our spirits have been reconciled unto God, they begin to move deeper into the kingdom. But there's certain things that some of us continue to hold on to that are stretching us thin. Because we still believe that our identities are found in the broken things of the world. We still think that our identities in some way are bound to things that are actually anti-kingdom. And they hurt our spirits. But meanwhile, our spirits are hearing the call of God, the invitation of God, and continually stepping deeper into the kingdom. And I believe that when we realign the things that we do with our spirit, God brings us into wholeness. And we have those epiphany moments where we're like, yes, this is my job. This is my vocation. This is what my father Adam and my mother Eve were created to do, to advance the kingdom, to advance love and peace and beauty and justice. And so I want us to take a moment and you can write down things if you want on your phone, or you can just kind of close your eyes and be open and receptive before the Lord. But I just want us to, to take a moment and reflect on this idea. What does the will of God look like for my life in this place and in this time? So Heavenly Father, we testify that your spirit is here right now, Lord. Would you open us up, mind and heart and spirit? And would you show us in confidence the things that you find there that are of your will. Show us how your will um, envelops our life, transforms our lives, 
in the things that we say yes to and the things that we say no to. Just take a moment and dialogue with Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for revealing to us your will. Thank you for showing us what it looks like when you move in this world, when you continue to rescue your creation, to restore it, and to redeem it. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to each of us about how you've gifted us to say yes to you and the things that you're doing, the gifts that you've given us, the passions you've given us, the things that make our spirit resonate with that kingdom goodness. Lord, we pray that those revelations would give us a deeper courage to say yes to you all the more, to give over more of who we are to the advancement of your kingdom. Amen. So, kingdom legacy is rooted in doing the will of God. Second, my second point, Jesus invites us to reorient to what truly matters in his kingdom. Jesus invites us to reorient to what truly matters in his kingdom. You know, often we think that the first sermon that Jesus preached was the Sermon on the Mount, but he has some words in his earthly ministry just before that, and it's repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And we might say in our modern language, repent, the word in Greek is metanoia. It means change your brain, change the way that you think, change the way you assume things are. Because the reality of God, the new reality of God as demonstrated through Christ Jesus is so close that you can reach out and touch it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 16, verse, beginning in verse 24. Jesus is kind of making some of his final statements before they step into the final piece of his ministry in Jerusalem when he prepares to encounter Pontius Pilate and to encounter the religious leaders of the day. And he says this in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to lose their life or to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. First, Jesus invites us to deny ourselves. What does he mean about deny yourself? We've, we've talked about this a couple times before, even a couple weeks ago. Janae was talking about the importance of loving ourselves. How can we love ourselves when we deny ourselves? But when Jesus invites us to deny ourselves, he's inviting us to deny our ego, to deny our personal will, to deny the decisions that we make out of our flesh. And chasing after things that don't actually matter. Chasing after things that were never intended to be part of our vocation, of the job that God has created in us to be his image bearers. And secondly, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow him. Now we all automatically know what that means because we live on the other side of the resurrection. 
But for his disciples, this would have been a very strange comment that Jesus makes because they do not yet know what is about to happen to him. That the cross was the sign of death. It was the sign of shame that people were crucified in the Roman Empire on the outskirts of the city to say, you're no longer human. You're being stripped of your dignity. And it was not uncommon for people to have to carry their own crosses out to the place of shame. But when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's saying, this is the meaning of my life. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm here to do for me, even to deny my own self and to take up that cross and to follow God because my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And what is it that the cross speaks to us? What is it that the cross speaks to us? The cross says to us, this is what God is like. You want to know what God looks like. This is what God looks like. A God who is so in love with his creation. A God that is so desperate to be reconciled with his beloved that he will break himself open. That he will take upon himself all of the wrath and the shame and the brokenness in order to allow their space for creation and creator to be reconciled. The cross says This is what God really looks like. And so when Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross, he's saying that to each one of us. Deny your ego. Deny your personal will. Deny the desires of the flesh. Take up a life that whispers to the world, this is what God looks like. This is what it means, brothers and sisters, for us to be Christians, to be little Christ. That every word that we speak, every action of ours, every thought is a gentle whisper that says, this is what God is like. And that's so beautiful to me because I think it expands our understanding of what Jesus is speaking about here. He says, what what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? to exert his will over the people around him, to to bring up wealth and power and all these things. What does it benefit him to gain that and to yet to lose his soul because his soul is intended for an entirely different purpose? What is our motivator in life? This is what Jesus is speaking to us about. What is it that really motivates us at the core of who we are? Give you a little bit of philosophy. Any philosophy nerds in here? All right, two of you, you're totally going to get what I'm about to say. Everybody else, look it up on Wikipedia. (laughs) All right, Friedrich Nietzsche, German, gigantic mustache. Maybe you've seen a picture of him. Friedrich Nietzsche is a philosopher and a psychoanalyst, came up with this idea of the will to power. He said fundamentally at the core of what motivates human beings is our desire for power. And that's how we make daily decisions. That's what we decide in what we choose to do and what we choose not to do because we're all inherently looking for that power. And it's not too hard to see that sometimes, isn't it? In the decisions that we make, we want more power. Money equals power. Knowledge equals power. You know, whatever it is, influence equals power. But we build up within ourselves this desire for power. And then Sigmund Freud comes along. Smaller mustache, Austrian brings everything back to your mother. Sigmund Freud comes along and he develops an idea called the pleasure principle or the will to pleasure. And he says, no, no, no. The fundamental motivator of all human beings is pleasure. That we make decisions out of what's pleasurable, 
about what's comfortable, what makes us happy. Or we make, conversely, we make decisions that avoid things that are uncomfortable, things that make us sad, things that hurt us, things that cost us. But before both of these guys, there was a Christian philosopher in the 19th century in Denmark. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. Um, wild hair, no mustache, really sad, died too early. And Kierkegaard came up with this idea of will to meaning. So you've got will to power, will to pleasure, and will to meaning. And he said the fundamental motivation of human beings is that we desire to lead a meaningful life. It's a meaningful life is what motivates us. And I see this so profoundly in the realm of artists, in the realm of scientists. If you were to go up to one of the great artists, to the great scientists, while they're in the process of creating or studying, whatever it is, and you ask them if they're happy in that moment, they're probably going to look at you strange. Or if they're comfortable. I, do, I, I chewed a lot of paint accidentally when I was in art school. It's not always comfortable. Sometimes it's very tedious. You look at these scientists who are doing these amazing experiments, but they're putting themselves in the place of risk, that scientists are working with chemicals or whatever it might be that is literally shortening their lives because they're willing to sacrifice comfort and happiness and even pleasure sometimes to make that significant breakthrough because they're looking for meaning. And I think that that is really what we're called to, but not a will to meaning that we decide upon, but a will to meaning that sees the kingdom advance. And so what Jesus is saying in this passage about our core motivation as Christians to deny ourselves and to take up our cross is this. When we pursue a life of advancing the kingdom, number one, it costs us much. It costs us much. And sometimes we're uncomfortable with that. But when we pursue a life of advancing the kingdom, it costs us much. I would even go so far to say it costs us everything that we are. It costs us our ego. It costs us comfort. Sometimes it costs us happiness. Sometimes it costs us the convenience of certain kinds of relationships or the pleasure of just making the decisions that we want to make. But secondly, when we pursue a life of advancing the kingdom, we find more than we could have anticipated. We find more than we could have anticipated. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom. Put aside all of the other desires that you have. Put aside your desires for health and wealth and relationships and success and power and pleasure. Put all of these things aside and unilaterally pursue the kingdom. And these things will be added onto you. In the Old Testament, it says the good Lord gives and takes away. And I believe what that really means is that when we give God everything we are, he tends to give things back to us, but now they've been redeemed. They've been restored. And they're far greater than the things that we could possibly imagine. It's the only way that I can justify how we can live in a kingdom that is full of joy yet also suffers. Because when we pursue pleasure in life, joy and suffering are not compatible. If something hurts, if something costs me, then I have to avoid it with everything that I am in order to continue to pursue joy. 
But I think it's easy for us to recognize that when we chase after joy, when we chase after happiness, when we chase after all of these things, they seem unattainable. But when we put all of that aside and we chase after Jesus, when we chase after his kingdom, these things are added onto us. Not because they're the things that we're looking for, but that they are the quality of life that's found in the kingdom. So I want to take one more moment I want us to reflect on this question. What is my motivation in the decisions that I make day to day? So Heavenly Father, would you now um, just peel back all of the things that we're pursuing in our life, the things that we put our hands to day to day, and would you reveal to us what's, what's our heart space like? What's our core motivator, Lord, if we're pursuing power, if we're pursuing pleasure, if we're pursuing Um, your will, your kingdom, or for pursuing meaning, Lord. Reveal to us what is the deepest desire of our hearts. Again, just take a moment and just dialogue with the Father. Thank you that we can approach you with boldness and confidence to open up our lives for you to show us what you see in the core and to hand over everything we are to you for redemption and restoration. We thank you, Father. We thank you for the gift of your kingdom. May it continue to advance in each of our lives in this world you so desperately love. So kingdom legacy is rooted in doing the will of God. Jesus invites us to reorient to what truly matters in the kingdom. And finally, living life presently oriented to God allows us to leave a legacy that glorifies Him. I don't think that legacy is something that we pursue. Again, it's one of those things that if we're not seeking first the kingdom, if we're seeking to create a legacy, if we're seeking to be great, if we're seeking to have power, it's something that's unattainable and we can never fully grasp it. But I think that a legacy is something that is a byproduct of living a life of intimacy with God. Legacy is the byproduct of a long life in which we love God well and we love others well. Cat in the band sang that beautiful song in Christ Alone by the Gettys. And it's beautiful mostly because they're from Northern Ireland and we write the best songs. Van Morrison, another great example. But I love in that in that final in that final verse that we read, it says this No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Destiny, right? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Right in the beginning of the book of Philippians, we find Paul, and I like to imagine Paul in this point in his life as he's writing this letter, as a very old 
man. And he begins his letter talking about his affection for this young, small church. And one of the things that he brings up in the beginning, he says, I'm not going to lie. Part of me really wants to stay with you guys and to love you and continue to advance the kingdom. But part of me also kind of wants to go home and be with Jesus. And I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm torn. He says this in verse 21 in the first chapter. For me, to live in Christ and to die is gain. And I think Paul stood on the very edge of a legacy of him advancing the kingdom with everything he had. And because he had lived such a life of meaning, of giving over everything he was to the kingdom of God, death was not something to fear. Death was something to welcome because he knew what was on the other side, that he was going home to be with Jesus. How many of us, the anxiety that we carry within us, the despair we carry within us, is actually a fear of having lived a meaningless life. But Paul, recognizing the legacy that he's left behind, elsewhere in Timothy, he says, I fought the good, ra- I fought the good fight, I've run the good race. He talks often about this legacy that he's established, that has is, that is created for him the opportunity to go home to his maker and to be received in joy. And I think this is where true freedom and true joy are present. Because those kind of things transcend our earthly conditions while being in their very midst. And so when suffering comes, we continue to find joy. Because our joy is not attached to the moment. It's not attached to the things of this world, but it's attached to heaven itself. Paul goes on to read this in Philippians 1, beginning at verse 27. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Oh my gosh, doesn't that sound so good? Doesn't it sound so good? To be, have a such strong pull towards the kingdom of God that there's nothing that can frighten us, including death itself. Because we know we've given ourselves over to the only thing that truly matters. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This life is not about pursuing happiness or joy, although those things will come. This life is not about being comfortable or suffering, but those things will come. This life is about finding our meaning in Jesus and faithfully advancing his kingdom with everything that we have. This was not my 30-year plan. This isn't what I was supposed to be doing. I got an education degree. I was going to teach high school for 30 years. That was the plan. And then I started a ministry school in Nashville, and that was going to be the plan. And now I'm here. And I'm at the point where I say, okay, I get it. I can't control this. And I don't want to. 
This wasn't my 30-year plan, but it's better than anything that I could have imagined for myself, as I still continue to learn to say yes to God and to his kingdom. It gives me greater confidence to say no to the things of the world, to say no to things that are actually anti-kingdom, because I find in myself that it's the thing that I have been created to do all along. And I, like many of you, I want to run this race well. And I want to finish and to be welcomed into the new heaven and the new earth, hearing my Jesus say those words over me, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you want that? Is that what you want? Then learn how to say yes and no. Learn how to choose the things of the kingdom. Learn how to pursue Jesus in a way that someday you will have a legacy to stand on, where you greet death as a friend because you know that you've been faithful to him with your gifts and your passions in this time and in this place. Would you stand with me, please? I want to leave you with this question as we continue in worship. Based on what you're pursuing now, what will your kingdom legacy be? And I invite you, if you so desire, to turn to the people next to you and to invite them to pray over you, to anoint your future, to anoint your legacy, to choose to say no to the things that God never asked you to pick up and to choose to sink your teeth deeper into the things that he's saying yes to for you. Because I guarantee you, you will find that wholeness that you so desire. You will find that happiness. You will find that joy because you seek first his kingdom. Heavenly Father, we stand before you absolutely vulnerable, absolutely open. Nothing to hide, Father. You search us and you know us and you like us. Father, would your spirit take us by the hand and walk us into our daily lives. Reveal to us the things that you want us to say yes to. The things of love, the things of peace, the things of beauty, the things of justice, the things that are the fabric of the kingdom of God, the things that are your character. And Father, we pray that you will teach us how to let go of the things that are not. So that we might run this race well might finish and to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, we dedicate everything we are to you and we pray these things in the strong and the blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.